Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Well, how many of you in your life have known the right thing to do but not done it? And I'm not, I don't need you to see your hands, because this is kind of one of those pastoral rhetorical questions. But <laughs> Maybe a better question was for you to think about, when was the last time you knew the right thing to do but didn't do it, right? When was the last time you chose to shy away from truth in order to avoid conflict or avoid a difficult conversation. It wasn't too long ago that we had Christmas and Thanksgiving, which is usually a time where these things pop up. When family's over, we're sitting around the table, it's a lot easier to ask your family members, can you pass the rolls, rather than, have you been to church lately? Or the dreaded, I saw your last Instagram post, right? It's a lot easier to sometimes avoid those things in life rather than deal with the conflict or the conversation. Our particular passage today continues to talk about grace, right? And you probably didn't know that because our series title is so clever and ambiguous, um, the gospel of grace it's called. Uh, And you know what we're going to talk about every Sunday for the rest of this series, but today we're going to be talking about grace in action. The first 10 verses of chapter 2, which we looked at last week, recount Paul's trip to Jerusalem. It's Paul's trip to Jerusalem in order to verify the truth of the gospel, what it is and what it meant. And to be in accord with the rest of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, etc., to agree on what the gospel is. And it was there that Peter, who is called Cephas in our passage, which is just the Aramaic version of Peter, affirmed that we do not need to add anything to the gospel. This was to to push against the idea that had crept into the Galatian church that although the gospel was a great start for a Christian, you needed to do the right things, good works, in order to maintain a good standing before God. But the gospel is this, and what we know and what we've heard so far, that we as Christians have right standing and continue to have right standing before God, not based on anything we could do, nor on any cultural or ethnic pedigree, but simply by God's unmerited grace and favor towards us through Jesus' work and love on the cross. The gospel tells us that we are incomplete, we're sinful, We're guilty, and there's nothing we can do about it. (laughs) But God has made a way for us through his son for us to be justified, for us to be in right standing before God, to be part of his family, to be part of the body of Christ. And that gospel is an ever-present reality for Christians. It's not a, a singular point of action when we first believe. Paul's trip to Jerusalem established this, what we call the gospel of grace, the doctrine of grace. The apostles got together and said, yes, this is what it is. And in their case, the right things to do 
the, the right things that they were trying to add to their faith were the Jewish cultural laws, right? Circumcision, obeying the law of Moses, those sort of things. And in this way, Paul's message is for Christians. It was Christians who were falling into the trap that after becoming Christian, your life had better start to look righteous in order to be in favor with God or God won't continue to uh, accept you in the same way. That's the trap these Christians in this church were falling into. It was you believe and then you need to obey and then you experience salvation. That's a reversal, a perversion like we heard of the gospel, which is that we believe and are saved and out of that obedience flows. For them, the order has switched. One of the direct outcomes of that groundbreaking meeting in Jerusalem, as we mentioned last week, was that Titus, who is not a Jew, who's a Greek, didn't have to get circumcised, right? And in that moment, Titus had a new appreciation for the gospel, right? Now, in verses 11 through 14, we see Peter coming to visit Paul in Antioch, right? So we just went through uh, where Paul went to visit Peter in Jerusalem, And now our story today is Peter coming up to visit Paul in Antioch, where Paul had been living with Barnabas for about a year at that time. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Antioch was a Gentile town, uh, non-Jewish. The church there was a Gentile church, a non-Jewish church. They were non-Jewish Christians. And as you know, we've heard that this is where they were first called Christians in Antioch. And as we read things got a little heated, got a little tense. The scene before us is a after-church potluck, which was pretty typical in that time. They would get together uh, after maybe a teaching or so, come together, have fellowship together, eat food together. Perhaps this is when they would also participate in the Lord's Supper. And Peter, Paul, and Barnabas are there, as well as a few other Jewish believers. They're enjoying communion with non-Jews. The language used tells us that this was actually an ongoing practice for Peter, that he would regularly eat with the Gentile believers. It wasn't just a one-time occurrence as in this story here. They had no issues with eating with the Gentiles in this setting, something that prior to their experience with the gospel would have been scandalous, right? For a Jew to eat with a Gentile was against the Mosaic law. And before Paul or Peter ever had their journey of grace and knowing the gospel, they would have never sat with Gentiles and eaten with them. It violated their law. But as we saw, that that council that met in Jerusalem when Paul went to Jerusalem a few verses back established that religious cultural customs were not necessary in order to be in God's kingdom. They weren't required to be in favor with God. Therefore, Jews and Gentiles could accept each other as equals before God, share in communion. And it's at one of these meals that some Jewish men come from James. It says in our text, they come from James, but that doesn't mean that James sent them or endorsed their beliefs or anything like that. Verse 9, actually, earlier in the chapter, says that James is in full agreement with Peter and Paul about what the gospel is. What actually is probably happening here is that these guys show up 
that they're some sort of rogue lieutenants from James and they're name dropping James to try to gain credibility with the church there. James didn't actually send them to this church. But these men come in and whether by threat or influence, they compel Peter who had previously been eating with the Gentile believers to revert back to a Jewish custom and not eat with the Gentile believers. But it's more than that. It's, it's not just, the story here isn't just showing that uh, Peter avoiding non-Jewish people or becoming a clique or anything like that. By not eating with the Gentiles, his actions were communicating something greater than that. They were communicating that they, the Gentile Christians were not acceptable to God and thus not to be accepted into the fold of the church. It wasn't just about cliques. Peter was saying with his actions, hey, you're not really really a part of this church body. You need to obey Jewish customs or laws to be a Christian. But here's the thing. We're going to miss the whole point of this passage if we think it's just about avoiding clicks at a church potluck or special seating arrangements, right? We even miss the main point if we think this passage is just about the sinfulness of ethnic superiority. It might address both of those things, but make no mistake, this passage is about grace and applied grace for us as Christians, the very foundation of our salvation. But rather than about what grace is, what it means, or defining it, this passage really, uh, this confrontation between Peter and Paul that we see is a case study in how grace is applied to one's life. And that's what we're learning, right? Not just what grace is through this series in Galatians. We're not just learning about what grace is, that's part of it, but also how it applies to our life, how it's meant to change the way that we live. Peter was acting in a way inconsistent with the gospel message. Paul calls him out on it, right? Peter, when these men from Jerusalem show up, he all of a sudden gets up and moves to a different table, communicating so much with his actions. And Paul says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter was acting in a way that was inconsistent with the gospel message. His action, in his actions, we see our own tendency to hold ourselves aloof from other Christians because they somehow, in our mind, don't measure up for one reason or another about what they should be doing, right? That's pretty much what we see Peter doing here. Peter here was motivated by peer pressure. It might be something else in us, but the root sin is the same. Valuing self over the relational implications of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Paul shares this this story to reveal to the church in Galatia grace in action. And I hope that as we work through it and as we work through our series in Galatians, that we find areas where we are in desperate need of the grace to be applied to our lives, areas where we need to actualize the the implications of the gospel message for our life. And that's why Paul gets so worked up. That's why we see a showdown between 
probably two of the most famous Christians of that time, Peter and Paul. Paul opposes Peter to his face, it says, and before them all. Because Peter was not acting in accordance to the gospel that he proclaimed. This was not some subtle, whispered, backroom thing. Paul didn't grab Peter and pull him to the side and say, hey, let me tell you what's going on here. No, this was in front. This was before them all and to his face. And just imagine for a second the boldness of Paul here in this case. Peter, this is the apostle Peter, who was probably the most famous Christian of that time, okay, the most famous Christian of that time. And Paul, at this point, this is early on in his ministry, before he had written all the the books of the New Testament and everything, Paul was probably more well-known for what he had been, right, a, a violent persecutor of the church than who he would become and who we see him now as. So here's Paul, right, and he's standing up to the most, you know, esteemed Christian of that time. And to make matters worse, to make matters worse, Peter's hypocrisy had duped Barnabas and led him astray too. Barnabas was living and working in Antioch with Paul at that time. Barnabas was probably Paul's best friend. It was Barnabas who first stood up for Paul in front of all the other apostles when Paul was first introduced to the other apostles and they were sure, I don't know if this guy's saved because he was just persecuting us. It was Barnabas who stood up and defended him that, no, this guy is legit. And here, Peter shows up and is leading Paul's best friend astray. Against all this, Paul stands up and boldly confronts Peter, calls him out. This is not a matter of personal sin, You'll know in Matthew 18, the Bible instructs us to address those issues first with discretion, not in front of everybody like Paul is doing here. But uh, this is an extremely public scene. And you can imagine this scene, right, when, when Paul first stands up and calls out Peter and says, Peter, right, the whole room just goes silent. You know, and you're, you either have people whose eyes are locked on the scene or other people are like, wow, I can't look at this. This is the worst thing ever, right? This is a very tense moment. The air is thick. But why did Paul do it in this way? Why did Paul have to do it in this way to his face and before them all? We understand it when we read what Paul was witnessing in Peter's actions. Peter's conduct, and here's the key phrase, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Paul could have said to Peter, hey, Peter, you're not following the rules. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to eat over there. You're supposed to eat with everyone else over here. You broke a rule. And while that's true that he broke a rule, breaking a rule is not why Paul is so boldly opposing him to his face. Peter stood condemned, as it says in verse 11, because he was not walking in line with the gospel. His actions were not being affected by the renewal of the gospel. He was failing to apply the gospel that he knew in his heart in this this moment. Paul isn't just telling Peter that his cultural elitism is a sin, which it is, He's saying his breaking the fellowship with the other believers is not in line with the gospel. He goes deeper and says, the reason you're acting this way is you're trying to find something other than Jesus to build yourself up. 
and to break fellowship with believers. And as we're going to see later, our own failure of transformation and change in our life, maybe in an area of sin in our life, is really just exposing an area in our life where we need the truth of the gospel. Paul doesn't say, hey, you shouldn't sit there. You, should, you need to move back over here. He says, you're out of step with the very essence of Christianity, the gospel. You forgot that you are a sinner saved by grace. And his actions were leading others astray. Others astray from the truth of the gospel. It wasn't isolated with just Peter, right? Paul knew the crux of Christianity was at stake for all those in attendance, for those uh, Gentile believers who were witnessing this action, and as well as the Jewish believers who were being dragged along with Peter's hypocrisy. Peter's actions were, were perverting the gospel, the true message, like a reversal, like we heard last week. It was saying, Jesus isn't enough. You really got to help yourself out some. Yeah, Jesus died for you, but you need to make sure you do these certain things or act this certain way or live this certain way in order to stay in with Jesus. And since you're not, well, I'm going to treat you like a, a lesser Christian. Right? That's what Paul's actions were communicating. I'm going to treat you like a lesser Christian until you pull yourself together. You see the danger in Peter's actions here. He made some lesser thing into the main thing. We Christians do this all the time, by the way. We Christians do this all the time. And we're not doing it with uh, circumcision or pork or seating arrangements, but we have our own way of doing this, right? The issue might be, it might be things like uh, Calvinism, Armenianism, when the rapture happens, different styles of worship, Bible translations, the gift of the Spirit, or even sillier things like should Christians dance, right? Should Christians dance or drink alcohol or only sing with organ music or never sing with organ music? I don't know. You name it, right? We do this all the time. But these things are made null and void by the gospel. There are core things which we should draw lines on, and sin issues where separation is necessary. But when we create second-class Christians by these lesser things, like Peter's doing here, we have failed to apply the gospel in our life. And here's the thing. Peter knew the gospel. It's not like he didn't know the gospel. He knew the gospel, believed the gospel. Peter and Paul just had a whole meeting not too long ago in Jerusalem about the gospel. And Paul knows that. Paul knows Peter knows. Peter didn't, and he didn't hear it just secondhand, the gospel, right? He didn't hear it once. He didn't have a single encounter with it. No, we hear of his journey of understanding grace through scripture. We see his own journey in Acts 10 even. Peter's own journey of understanding what grace is and how it's applied. It's in Acts 10 that we see Peter. He's on the roof of his house. Uh, he's doing his midday prayers like a good Jewish boy is, and he all of a sudden falls into this trance, okay? He falls into a trance and has a vision from God. And in that vision, there's this big sheet that's lowered to him, and inside are full of all these things that he's not supposed to eat, right? Lobster, shrimp, pork, amazing. Um, I just barbecued pork ribs last night. Oh, praise God for the gospel. Um, and a voice from heaven says, rise, Peter, and eat. And what does Peter say? 
says, never. I've never eaten this stuff. That's not right. I don't eat, do that. And the voice says, what God has made clean, do not call common. Meaning, God does not show ethnic or cultural partiality. The gospel breaks that down. And for Peter, this vision actually happens three times to emphasize its meaning to him. Peter has a lot of things that happen three times in his life, you'll see. That story goes on that after that vision, God tells Peter to go to a Gentile's house, something that is against Jewish law, where he, uh, Peter ends up preaching the gospel to that household there. And what happens, the, the Holy Spirit descends on those present and they start speaking in tongues and glorifying God. And Peter says, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Right? Baptism. Baptism, that symbol of bringing into the fold the family of God. Peter is recognizing that they can be brought into the family of God. You can be a Gentile. You don't have to be Jewish and you can, and be a Christian. And for Peter, that nothing should uh, keep him from excluding others as Christians. The story goes on in the following verse or following chapter, Acts 11. After those things, Peter was called to Jerusalem to talk about all this. Because what's going on? To discuss this very thing. Could non-Jews be accepted by God without first becoming Jewish in their way of life? Were things like race or culture or customs issues of salvation? That was the big talk in Jerusalem. And Peter defends this gospel of grace to the Jews, ending with the exclamation, who was I that I would stand in the way of God? Right? Who am I to be in the way of God? And the Jews said, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. You don't have to adhere to certain rules to be right before God. That was huge. That was huge. And all this happened to Peter. Oh, Peter knows the gospel, right? He knows the gospel. He had defended the gospel, had heavenly visions from God about the gospel of grace. But Peter here in Antioch wasn't living out those convictions. He knew the Gentiles at this potluck, this church potluck, were Christians, but he was acting like they weren't. Or like they were not quite on his level yet. Like, you got to get on my level, guys, right? They, you got to adhere to certain rules, certain customs, certain way of doing things to be right before God. He was treating them as lesser Christians. He chose fear over truth. At that moment, he chose what was easy over what was right. Sometimes doing what is right means taking a difficult stand, doesn't it? But doing, but not doing so, not doing so reveals an absence in our life of the gospel that emboldens us, gives us identity, and sets us free. Verse 12 says, he, he drew back and separated himself. He was, he was ashamed of his actions because he knew what he was doing. And he knew that it wasn't right. He drew back. He knew what he was doing wasn't in accordance with the truth. And this is really reminiscent of the insecure Peter we read about in the uh, other places in the New Testament, right? The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
We know the story of Peter. We know other areas of his life, other moments where we see this insecure Peter come through. This is Peter who, when Jesus mentioned his upcoming death to him, Peter tries to rebuke Jesus. Peter takes him aside and says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Right? And Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, you're an idiot. Right? It's kind of paraphrased. But he says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Listen to what Jesus tells him. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Right? Peter was doing this out of fear. He was rebuking Jesus because a Jesus dying on the cross was not the Jesus Peter wanted him to be. He was doing it out of fear. This is also the the same Peter in the garden lops the ear off of the servant who comes to arrest Jesus, attempting to save Jesus as if Jesus needed to be saved. And what does Jesus say? Peter, you idiot. I could have called down a million angels at this moment. Who are you to think? And of course, Jesus puts the ear, just puts that ear back on. This is the Peter who denies Jesus three times, right? And this is the Peter who, again, despite all that he's seen, all that he knows, all that he's been told, bows to fear before the Jews at this church gathering in Antioch because he's afraid of them. Peter's story It reminds me that despite Jesus' work of justification in my life, that I am still in need of his work of sanctification. Peter knew the gospel, believed the gospel, but Peter was failing to live the gospel in that moment. And I know that I have those moments too. He was not in step with the truth of the gospel, as it says in verse 14. And there are actually three things in this passage that we see in Peter that are not in step with the truth of the gospel, not in accordance with the way of Jesus. You'll easily see these are things that we are so prone to as well, just like Peter, where we need the truth of the gospel applied. So what are these three things that are not in step with the truth of the gospel? In this passage, I believe we see that fear, Hypocrisy and legalism are not in accordance with the message of Jesus. Fear. Fear is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter chose fear over truth. And Peter's fear of the visiting Jewish party, which it talks about in verse 12, was not in step with the gospel. And it's more likely that this was kind of a a social fear rather than a fear of physical harm, although it could have been that. But it's more likely that he was afraid of what this uh, Jewish group of um, men that came from Jerusalem, he was afraid of what they were thinking about him or maybe their influence. Maybe he was afraid of losing his position or status among the Jews in Jerusalem. But he was putting more stock into what they thought than what Jesus taught. And it sounds like silly, petty playground stuff, doesn't it? And it, you know what? It totally is. It totally is. But we often do the same thing. We fear what others think and allow that to determine our actions rather than the gospel determining our actions. The gospel confronts and dispels that insecurity and fear. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 13, where we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
What can man do to me? And maybe you're here this morning with some underlying fear or anxiety that maybe something's about to go wrong in my life. I don't know what, but it just feels that way. Or you imagine worst case scenarios with those um, that you work with or with your family. That you're tense with, with trying to keep everything together. Then listen to these beautiful words of the prophet Isaiah, which say to you, fear not for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That is the God Almighty saying those words to us. The gospel means that God, the Almighty God, is with you. He is for you. How can we fear? Paul would write in another of his letters, What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? right? Who can be against us? The God of the universe calls us his own. We are his, and it's not contingent on how awesome you are, how good you are, how put together you are. It's because he made you. He loves you. It's in his nature. He can't have anything but love for you. We don't need to fear because God is our helper. If you believe, then you are his. And we might have lapses in our faith, like Peter, but God never has lapses in his grace towards you. That's the gospel. And it's in that gospel that there's no place for fear. Peter was out of step with the truth of the gospel. He became a slave to fear, but by the gospel we have security. The other thing we see in this passage is that is not in step with the gospel is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Hypocrisy is when our actions don't line up or not in step with our words. It comes from a Greek word meaning uh, actor. Back then in ancient Greece when they were acting and they were playing somebody, they would put a mask on and they were called hypocrites, putting a mask on. And Paul accuses Peter and the rest of the Jews as acting hypocritically in verse 13. And it led others astray. Peter knew the gospel. Peter had verbally defended the gospel, but his actions were telling a different story, weren't they? And isn't this what the, what the world accuses the church of most often? Hypocrisy? We hear that. That we speak all high and mighty on Sunday, but are out there on Monday holding grudges, being judgmental, Lying, selfish, slothful, arrogant, overly concerned with looks or money, right? Non-Christians say the church is full of hypocrites. Unfortunately, I would say they're not entirely wrong, but it should not be that way. The profound irony is that the very gospel we preach stands in direct opposition to hypocriticism. But apparently we are not doing a good job of telling others about that. In a recent poll, it says that 76% of Americans think that one must contribute to their own salvation, that we have to earn our own salvation. Three quarters of America thinks that, but that's not what the gospel preaches. We're not doing a good job of telling our neighbors, our communities, our cities about the great news of the gospel, that you can't earn it but God freely gives it. 
Hypocrisy is ultimately rooted in fear or insecurity. That's the point we just discussed. We use hypocrisy to avoid looking at our own shortcomings. We do it to feel morally superior to others. It's a deflection tactic. We are deflecting away from seeing ourselves as we really are. And I'll tell you what, as I was looking up these definitions of hypocriticism, uh, dictionary.com was preaching to me uh, this week. Those are hard truths to come to terms with sometimes, right? But the gospel comes in with the truth that, yes, I'm not perfect, but I am loved. I'm not perfect, but I am loved. We will always have shortcomings, but that's not what defines us. Christ's love is what defines us. The gospel says that we are far more sinful than we could even imagine, but we are far more loved than we could ever fathom. When we walk according to the truth, we don't need to put on masks, right? We know who we are in Christ. By the gospel, we have identity. The third and last thing that we see as standing against the gospel in our passage here is legalism. Legalism is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter's legalism became apparent by trying to force or compel the Gentiles to live like Jews in verse 14. This is the same word, force and compel, that was used in verse 3 when Paul says that even Titus was not forced or compelled to be circumcised. Legalism is the expectation that I need to do the right things, act a certain way, follow these certain rules in order to be accepted by God. And you'll notice that these three things often work in concert with one another. We act legalistic, excessive rule following, which, of course, naturally we cannot keep, which leads us to being hypocritical, demanding of others the same thing that we cannot do. And it's all rooted in fear or insecurity that we're not good enough. And what makes this so poisonous is that we are acting as if we are in the place of God. But you remember back when we talked about in Acts When Peter was witnessing how God showed no partiality, he said, who was I to stand in the way of God? And yet here, Peter is acting as if he is in the place of God, accepting and rejecting people based on his idea of what it meant to be a good Christian. Most often, our legalism actually stems from our own culturally conditioned idea of what a good Christian should act like. I bet if we were to take a Christian legalist from California and a Christian legalist from Nigeria, you would get two very different ideas of what a good Christian is, each being adamant that theirs is the right way to be a Christian, right? Paul further repudiates legalism in verse 21 of chapter 2 where he says, If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Or as one author paraphrases that verse, if, li- if a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. You can't have any relationship with God by following rules, right? Keeping certain rules doesn't gain us extra favor with God. And why would we even burden others with what we can scarcely bear ourselves? It might not be any clearer than in Ephesians 2 where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. Legalism has no place in the gospel of grace. And that's freeing. Legalism condemns 
but the gospel sets us free. So what, is it, what does this mean for me today? Right? What is, what's the application? What does this mean for me today? Uh, I was recently talking with some of our home group leaders about how Bible knowledge without application doesn't lead to change, doesn't lead to transformation, doesn't lead us anywhere, right? So what does this mean for me today? This sounds like a, a great story of grace in action for the first century church. And you might say, hey, this is surely good, but you know, we've definitely moved on. We don't have any issues with thinking Jewish customs are necessary for our salvation. But again, let me remind you that we're going to miss the point if we fail to see it as more than that. Paul uses this story as a case study for the Galatian church on how the gospel, unmerited favor, is applied to our life. Because the gospel isn't something that you move on from in Christianity. You don't learn it in Sunday school, right? It's not like Olivia and the kids ministry team is out there teaching grace out there. But once you are old enough to come in here and like, whoa, watch out. This is where we do the real heavy God stuff in here, right? This is the big time. No, we need that gospel of grace before us all the time. The gospel is the very centerpiece, the foundation of all else in the Christian faith, and we daily need it. I think I've said this before, but my, uh, my son doesn't like to shower that often. Um, he just turned seven yesterday, by the way. Um, you know, so, early, you know, the other day, earlier this week, I said, Crosby, do you need to take a shower? No. I'm like, oh, yeah? Are you, are you sure? Yeah, I took one last week. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, that's not how it works, man. <laughs> it's not like one and done, you know? And in the same way, we don't experience grace once. We need it continually to cleanse us and wash over us. Because I've realized that without it, like my son, I don't often recognize my own stench and filth. We need it daily. As we see with Peter, even in his own life, it needs to be lived. It needs direct and daily application. It is a way of life. Martin Luther wrote a commentary on the book of Galatians. And in his commentary on this very chapter of Galatians, he said how uh, we need to teach each other the gospel. We need to beat it into their heads continually, right? Now, I won't throw any books at you now, but I do want to remind you that we never graduate from the gospel as Christians. The language of Peter's actions not being in step with the gospel is, in my opinion, maybe a, a better translation some, than some of the other ones out there that might say not straightforward about or, or not acting in line with, as the NIV says. Not being in step uh, draws out this language of walking, it's continual. We even talk about our walk with Jesus, don't we? Use that kind of language. It's not a, a singular point of action in our life, but it's an ongoing, ever-present part of our lives as Christians. Knowing it isn't enough, as we saw with Peter, has to be integrated into our, uh, into our lives as part of our daily lives. And earlier I said that uh, Peter's story reminds me that despite Jesus' work of justification in my life, we are all still in need of his work of sanctification. And these are two important doctrines in Christianity. So stay with me for one minute because I'm going to theologize and talk about those two words just for one minute. 
Sanctification means being set apart for special use. It means that God is at work by his Holy Spirit in me to to make me more and more like Jesus. It includes a a change of heart, a change of mind, and one day it's actually going to include a change of body. Amen. God has saved us despite our sinfulness, but in his mercy, he is not content to let us remain there. He wants to sanctify us. Justification is about our legal status before God was accomplished by grace the moment we believed. Sanctification is about our transformation. While we who believe Jesus is our Lord and Savior are justified before God by grace, we are currently in the process of being sanctified. And there's an important sequence there. Our problem is that we usually get the two mixed up sometimes. Usually, when we're struggling with sanctification in our life, when we're struggling to change, when there's an area of sin in our life that holds on too strongly, it often stems from a defective grasp of understanding our standing before God, our justification. In other words, when we feel no victory over sin in our life, We don't need more effort. We need more gospel. Any failure of transformation in my life is really just exposing an area of my life that needs the truth of the gospel. So if this is a a case study for us, then how is it applied? All we need to do is look into our life and, and recognize an area of sin where we feel stuck. How many of us have an area of our life where we feel stuck, that we we just can't move beyond, we can't seem to get over? A sin that seems to to grip us so tightly, the very idea that we could be transformed or changed seems not only unlikely but unattainable in our life. The gospel tells us the remedy is not try harder, but a more liberal application of the truth of the gospel. In Peter's case, his sin issue was the hypocrisy of exclusion. But Paul went straight for the root and says, you're out of step with the gospel. And for in your life, it could be anything. It could be anything else. What's your own area of sin? Without understanding that the root of our sin is a failure of gospel application, we're never going to get anywhere. We're never going to be able to experience freedom from that. Why do we keep doing something we know to be wrong? Why do we keep doing it? Maybe you know that you're judgmental. You're a judgy person. You know that it's wrong, right? I see some smirks out there. (laughs) You know that it's wrong, that you shouldn't be that way, but you can't stop. The root of that is our own insecurity with our own insecurity with who we are and a lack of self-acceptance. It's a it's that fear that we talked about earlier. But the gospel of grace cuts out the root. It gives us identity. It chops down fear. It frees us from that. Maybe you're addicted to pornography. You've tried so hard to stop but but get nowhere. Paul would say that you're not in step with the gospel. The root is a sense of worthlessness, but the gospel tells you that you have infinite value in the eyes of the creator. The gospel cuts at the very root. It could be anything. Maybe you're a gossip. You know it's a sin because the Bible's 
pretty plain about that, but you're stuck. Unless you know how it's rooted in a deviation from the truth of the gospel, in who you are, in God's, um, in God's love for you, you won't experience transformation. So where is it that you're stuck? Dig deeper and see where you're turning to something else besides Jesus. Because grace says Christ is all you need. In him you are loved, you are valued. In him you are accepted, you have purpose, you have identity. You don't need to turn to those other things. All things are yours and you are Christ's, as it says in 1 Corinthians. That's the gospel. That's what we need at the moment of salvation and every moment onward. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's why it's called good news. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God who loves us in spite of ourselves. Thank you, Father, that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. Instead, you shower us with love and you call us your own. Father, we are your sons and daughters. In you, we have acceptance, we have purpose, we have life itself. God. And Lord, there are moments, Lord, when we deviate from living out that truth. I know it to be true in my own life so often, God, just like Peter. So Lord, help us to apply the gospel. Help us to be back in step with the gospel in those areas, Lord. Forgive us, God. Lord, I thank you, Father, that you welcome us with open arms. Jesus, that you love us and accept us. And you've given us the gift of salvation and your very self. Thank you, Lord. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.